You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this third day of April, 2011. I would like to welcome all the listeners back to the Corbett Report and invite all of you, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos that I've created, conducted, and posted to the website over the course of the past four years. I'd also like to remind my listeners to check out the links page on CorbettReport.com, where you can find links to news and media sources with accurate information that I'd use and trust on a frequent basis, as well as media entities that help to broadcast, podcast, syndicate, and otherwise distribute the Corbett Report's works, including ParadigmShift.tv and KROCKS Radio 1 at ZeroPointRadio.com. For those of you who have been following the interviews tab over the course of the past week, you'll see that I've been fulfilling my promise to try to interview members, representatives, and directors of organizations that are helping to provide relief to earthquake and tsunami-stricken northeastern Japan. And you'll notice that I talked to Charles McJulton, the CEO and executive director of Second Harvest Japan, a food bank-type agency here in Japan, and also Yoshioka Tatsuya, the director of Peace Boat, which is a Japan-based non-governmental organization that is also helping to distribute aid and food and supplies to that area of Japan. And I'll also include in the documentation list for today's episode, which can be found on CorbettReport.com, a link to a video that Peace Boat put out earlier this week about what they are actually doing to assist in the efforts uh, to help people get back on their feet and to stay warm and clothed and eating in this very difficult time. And it contains a very powerful and very affecting story of one of the survivors of the tsunami who lost his mother and his aunt in that terrible calamity. So I will put that link up there so people can check it out. And again, I'm not telling people how to distribute their money, but I can say how I'm distributing my money, and I have made a donation to Peace Boat. And my wife's company also has a collection here in Japan that they're going to be sending to the uh, affected areas, so I'll be donating to that as well. And I invite people to check into other uh, organizations, and I did receive an email this week encouraging listeners out there to try Doctors Without Borders as a possible organization for distributing uh, aid and funding to that uh, terrible, terribly ravaged area of northeastern Japan. So once again, that is very much a priority and a very difficult time for everyone involved at this point. So I certainly hope that you will continue to support and keep those people in your thoughts and prayers as that is very much needed as the calamity in that area of the country continues to unfold. And that's very much what we'll be talking about in today's episode of the podcast. So without further ado, let's start episode 180. Tokyo Electric Power Company has reported to the government that its Fukushima number one and number two nuclear power plants are facing an emergency situation. It says in the Fukushima number one plant, the emergency diesel generators used to cool down the nuclear reactors are all inoperable. And in the Fukushima number two plant, an emergency cooling system has been activated. The Nuclear and Industrial Safety Agency says no radiation leakage has been reported so far. So the emergency shutdown has been conducted, 
but the process of cooling down the reactor is currently not going as planned. Yes, as of 60, uh, 4 to 36 p.m., we've received a report that the water cannot be pumped, and we are currently working on how to obtain enough electricity so that the water can all be sent and pumped into the reactor's cooler. So we're using all the backup electricity systems that are available there. Already unstable, but now teetering on what looks like a meltdown. After the quake and the tsunami, a blast at the Daiichi nuclear power plant in Fukushima. It's sheer power, plain to see. Reports that the roof of one of the reactors had caved in offered a worrying sign that the containment building may have been breached. This picture was taken directly after the explosion. It shows four reactors. The one on the furthest left, circled in yellow, no longer has its outer structure. Good morning, everybody. This is a Fox News alert. We have special extended coverage for you this morning. We're going on early because of what's going on in Japan. Japan at this hour is bracing for a possible nuclear meltdown. That's the worst case scenario because uh, there has been an explosion and a radiation leak at the Fukushima nuclear power plant. There's been serious damage to a reactor at that plant, and right now crews are rushing to contain the scene. Tension grows in the Tokyo metropolis. Chief Cabinet Secretary Yukio Aidano has now admitted that a partial meltdown has taken place at one of the Fukushima Daiichi reactors. And this is a cause of the relatively high levels of radiation escaping from the plant. Critics have been pouncing on the sluggish communications from the government. The Nuclear and Industrial Safety Agency admitted that damage had been done to the reactor pressure vessel only because workers had been injured by radiation in the course of their operations. Meanwhile, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, called TEPCO for short, which operates the Fukushima Daiichi plant, is apologizing to the public for releasing information on high radioactivity counts that they now say was inaccurate. Welcome, my friends, to episode 180 of the Corbett Report, The Chernobyl Question. And for those of you who have been keeping track or at least dipping in and out of the news of the terrible situation that's going on at the Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant in northeastern Japan, damaged as it was by the, the tsunami in the wake of the 311 earthquake, which we went over in last week's program, then you will know that this is a developing story. And that is exactly why this episode of this podcast is not going to in any way, shape or form pretend to be a complete overview of the situation there or a complete explanation of what is happening. And just as an example of the incredibly tumultuous and uh, very difficult to understand or talk about situation that's happening there. You could point to the thing that was mentioned in that last clip where the Tokyo Electric Power Company admitted last week or stated last week that water found in reactor number two was 10 million times more radioactive than water in a normally functioning plant would be. And that was almost immediately withdrawn and uh, retracted. And they said it was only uh, 100,000 times more radioactive than normal. But uh, of course, in an effort to report on what was going on, that 10 million times uh, figure was put in my Sunday update last week and immediately became old news and out and uh, was, according to the T Tokyo Electric Power Company, at least was actually wrong. 
Now, so this is a ongoing situation, and the the situation there continues to have twists and turns every single day. So there is no way possible in only the third week of this crisis to really uh, encapsulate what's going on there. And one example of that is the latest incredible news coming out of the plant as we sit here on the 3rd of April 2011 from Cryptagon.com. Fukushima, 1,000 millisieverts per hour in the air inside the pit of Reactor 2. Quote, I've become very hesitant to post any information that originates from the criminals at TEPCO, but this number has remained standing for over a day now. According to the IAEA, the limit for public radiation exposure is 1 millisievert per year. At Fukushima, they're looking at 1,000 millisieverts per hour via Reuters. Japanese officials grappling on Sunday to end the world's worst nuclear crisis since Chernobyl were focusing on a crack in a concrete pit that was leaking radiation into the ocean from a crippled reactor. Tokyo Electric Power Co. said it had found a crack in the pit at its number two reactor in Fukushima, generating readings 1,000 millisieverts of radiation per hour in the air inside the pit, end quote. And just for a, an understanding of what that means, because millisieverts and sieverts and all of these uh, radiation dosage readings are obviously not familiar to those of us, including myself, who are not steeped in nuclear safety. Well, for an example, you can head over to the uh, Wikipedia entry for sievert and find about the yearly dose examples so, for example, the yearly dose of someone living near a nuclear power station would be 0.0001 to 0.01 millisieverts per year of radiation. Or, for example, someone taking a New York to Tokyo flight uh, for an airline crew would be 9 millisieverts per year. The total average radiation dose, dose for Americans is 6.2 millisieverts per year. The background radiation in parts of Iran, India, and Europe is uh, 50 millisieverts per year. And uh, the annual regulatory limit for workers during the Fukushima emergency has recently been upped to 250 millisieverts per year from 100 millisieverts per year. Meaning that someone who was in that, uh, that pit of reactor number two for 15 minutes would receive their yearly dose of radiation. So there are some huge spikes going on, and there are signs that we are not being told the complete truth about what's what the real radiation levels are. And one example of that comes from Greenpeace.org from March 27, 2011. Greenpeace radiation team pinpoints need to extend Fukushima evacuation zone. Quote, Greenpeace radiation experts have confirmed radiation levels of up to 10 microsieverts per hour in Itate Village, 40 kilometers northwest of the crisis-stricken Fukushima Daiichi nuclear plant, and 20 kilometers beyond the official evacuation zone. These levels are high enough to require evacuation. End quote. So, given the scale and extent of the crisis that's going on there, I think it will be months and months before we have a proper handle on what the situation really is, and it will be years and years before we really know what went on there, if uh, historical precedent is anything to go by. And the historical precedent, of course, in this case, is the C-word, Chernobyl. And for those of you unfamiliar with the April 25th, 1986 blast at the Chernobyl nuclear power plant, here's a short primer. 
Friday the 25th of April, 1986. A beautiful spring day for the 43,000 inhabitants of Pripyat in the Ukraine. A day that will remain forever engraved in their memory. Three kilometers from the city, the Vladimir Ilyich Lenin nuclear power plant, where several thousand people go to work each day. Tonight, the 176 employees of Block 4 have been ordered to carry out a test on a self-fueling system of the reactor, something that could save energy. At 1.23 a.m., the security systems are deactivated and the experiment begins. A series of detonations go off in the core of the reactor. While Pripyat sleeps peacefully, the floor of the plant begins to tremble. The critical chain of events springs from the actions of night shift workers who were ordered by supervisors to carry out a safety test. Leonid removes too many control rods from the reactor. Then Boris reduces the amount of cooling water flowing through it. Their actions make the reactor very unstable, but they don't realize it. And when they finally try to rectify these errors, it's too late. The fuse that leads to the massive blast has been lit. ton cover of the reactor suddenly blasts into the air. An ultra-powerful stream of radioactive vapor releases uranium and graphite over hundreds of meters around the plant. From the gaping hole, a spray of fire charged with radioactive particles in fusion shoots a thousand meters into the sky. There were a lot of colors, and they were really bright, orange, red. Sky blue. Colors like blood. A rainbow. It was beautiful. The most serious nuclear accident in history has just taken place. The disaster explodes into front page news around the world. The press describes Chernobyl as an apocalypse. An accident has occurred at the Chernobyl atomic power plant. One of the atomic reactors has been damaged. Inside the USSR, the incident gets downplayed, buried under a host of other stories in the day's TV news. Measures are being taken to eliminate the consequences. The victims are being given medical attention and an investigation committee has been set up. Behind the news lies the larger truth. The Soviet nuclear dream is beginning to crumble. Signs of radioactive fallout emerge all over Europe. After 10 days, the toxic cloud has reached the United States and Asia. And there's a threat to other countries as well. But that was the crisis of just shy of 25 years ago, and Fukushima Daiichi is the crisis of today. 
and there is a very good question as to whether they have anything whatsoever to do with each other, and whether it is useful or even fair to use Chernobyl as an analogy for what is happening at Fukushima. And I think, at least from one perspective, a technical perspective, we can say quite clearly that the situation at Fukushima is quite different than what took place at Chernobyl, so any direct comparison of the disasters would be not only not fruitful, but perhaps even dangerous, as it might give us a false understanding of what is happening. Now, there are numerous reports on this subject, but one which goes into some uh, layman's detail, we'll, we'll put it. It's uh, quite easy to read, but still quite informative, from probepublica.org on the 18th of March. They put out a story titled, simply enough, Six Ways Fukushima is Not Chernobyl. And rather than reading all of those six points to you, I'll let you do that for yourself, which I suggest you do, because it does contain some good information about the differences in the situations. I will read you the six bullet point uh, points that they give, though, in the ways that Fukushima is not Chernobyl. Number one, Chernobyl's reactor had no containment structure, as opposed to the Fukushima Daiichi reactors, which the article goes on to note do have uh, containment structures. But at any rate, point number two in the six ways Fukushima is not Chernobyl. Chernobyl's reactors had several de design flaws that made the crisis harder to control. Most crucially, their cooling system had a positive void coefficient, which means that as coolant water is lost or turns into steam, the reaction speeds up and becomes more intense, creating a vicious feedback loop. Number three, the carbon in Chernobyl's reactor fueled a fire that spewed radioactive material further into the atmosphere. Fukushima's reactors do not contain carbon, which means that the contamination from an explosion would remain more localized. Number four, unlike Chernobyl, however, a meltdown at Daiichi could end up contaminating the water table. Number five, much of the public health impact of Chernobyl was the result of the Soviet government's attempt to cover up the crisis, rather than moving quickly to inform and protect the public. And number six, emergency workers at Chernobyl took few precautions and may not have been fully informed about the risks they were taking. All right, so as I say, I will let you read that article yourself. It does uh, seem to me that the last two points there do raise some interesting questions because it seems to me that the Chernobyl crisis is very much about the cover-up of what really went on there and the extent of what really happened. And uh, I do believe that we still don't fully understand the extent of what went on there and that more on that later. And on the sixth and final point in that article... Uh, about uh, the emergency workers at Chern Chernobyl not taking precautions. That's not entirely true, and I have encountered some excellent documentaries uh, when researching this episode about what really went on at Chernobyl and the incredible, unbelievable, Herculean lengths that the workers there went through to get that situation under control and to get the sarcophagus built within months of that uh, terrible reactor explosion. And uh, very much so, many of them suffered incredible uh, health consequences, and, and many of them actually did die from them. And more on that a little bit later. But at any rate, let's move on to uh, a different article, but along the same line of thought. Why Fukushima isn't like Chernobyl. And this is from thediplomat.com from March 29th of this year. And they're talking to Alexander Sitch and... The uh, first question in this article is, quote, Is the kind of massive radiation release that occurred with Chernobyl possible at the Fukushima plant? 
No, it can't have that kind of massive release. It simply can't do that. The question is to what extent the zirconium alloy, which clads the fuel pellets, is damaged in the core, and how much of the fuel has failed. And I don't necessarily mean melted, I mean failed. There's been an ambiguous use of the word melting applied to the core, but when people talk about meltdown, they should be very specific about what they mean by the word. At Fukushima, there are four primary barriers to releases. The fuel zerk alloy cladding, a pressure vessel, an inner containment structure, and a confinement building. To a large extent, the core material seems to be contained. Well, more on that later, side note. Apart from, of course, and this is where the speculation runs wild, there's the question of the source of the radiation they're detecting in certain areas where water has accumulated. Indications today are that it isn't the cores. They've been dumping or spraying tremendous amounts of water onto and into the damaged buildings, so surely someone is considering this water as a possible source. But until they go in and see, we have little more than speculation to go on because they don't know to what extent, if any, the cores are damaged, and they don't know to what extent the pressure vessels are damaged, although that's unlikely. They also don't know to what extent the pipes are damaged, and they don't know to what extent the lower portion of the containment building is damaged. So on the one hand, I can't speculate on what is going on inside, but even so, and given what nuclear engineers know in terms of the plant layout, it's just not true that it's a Chernobyl situation, end quote. Now, that was from March the 29th, and of course now it's April 3rd, so we can confirm that uh, the they have found the source of at least some of the radiation that seems to be spilling out directly into the, the sea uh, around the Fukushima plant, and we can get that from Kyoto News, um, from a story that was updated on April 3rd, today as I speak. Tainted water confirmed to have seeped into sea from nuke plant. Quote, water with high levels of radiation has been confirmed to have seeped into the sea from the number two reactor at the troubled Fukushima Daiichi nuclear power plant, government officials said Saturday, raising wider fears of environmental contamination by the release of radioactivity. The water has been leaking into the sea from a 20-centimeter crack detected at a pit in the reactor where power cables are stored, the government's nuclear agent safety agency said. End quote. And on March 25th, it should be noted that the uh, Prime Minister of Japan did note that there was likely a core breach in reactor number three that appeared to be leaking. And uh, that, as far as I can tell, was never exactly clarified, so there may still be the case of a core breach in reactor number three. Nevertheless, the point is well taken that there are technical and structural differences that mean that we cannot draw an analogy between what happened at Chernobyl and what is happening at Fukushima. They are different situations entirely and have to be considered each in their own way. And in that regard, many people who would, for various reasons, be compelled to defend nuclear power, however bad the disaster, have used this as an excuse to jump on the bandwagon of claiming that everyone who is talking about the dangers of radiation are merely fearmongers and that this is not Chernobyl, therefore this is going to be a cakewalk. And this type of idea has been propounded by some very strange bedfellows, one might say. And you might look to, for example, George Mombiot of The Guardian at guardian.co.uk from his now infamous 21st of March article, Why Fukushima Made Me Stop Worrying and Love Nuclear Power, 
where basically he decides that this crisis makes him believe that nuclear power is even safer than he ever thought and that it's all sunshine and rainbows and lollipops and therefore we need to support nuclear power because of course George Monbiot is one of the unfortunate victims of the climate change hoax or should that be a willing participant in that hoax I'm not going to speculate on that but at any rate he is of course the mouthpiece of the Copenhagen climate change hoax consensus. So there's very obvious reasons for him to support nuclear power uh, because it's so much safer than that vile life-giving CO2 gas which he wants to rid the planet of. And on the exact opposite end of the spectrum, you could not get more opposite. You go to whatsupwiththat.com, which is usually a bastion of reason in the science blogosphere and one of the few blogs to really and consistently and vociferously attack and critique the pseudoscience of the climate change hoax believers and is one of the most popular blogs on the entire internet as a result, by the way. But they have also jumped on the nuclear power is wonderful, it is life-giving, it is the most beautiful thing to ever have been invented, bandwagon. And one example of that is an article that they posted on March 14th, 2011, Nuclear Power Perspective. And this is, is an article that starts with the question, Japan's radiation leak, Shades of Three Mile Island and Chernobyl, and answers it by asking another question. How many were killed by three, the Three Mile Island incident? 100? 10,000? 100,000? Answer, none. None of the plant workers were killed, and no one in the surrounding area. But Chernobyl? We all saw the photos of the burning nuclear plant, and the open reactor, and the workers in radiation suits. Experts predicted numerous cancer deaths from fallout. Lots of people were killed in that, right? Okay, let me ask again. How many do you think? 100? 10,000? 100,000? The answer, after 20 years, i.e. time for cancers to develop, the total number of people killed is 56. To put that 20-year death toll in perspective, it was less than half of the number of people killed by tornadoes in the United States in 2008. End quote. The most despicable thing about that is that that is a complete and utter lie and that is a lie that some scientists have been working for their entire career to expose. Envirovideo.com just recorded an interview with Jeanette Sherman, MD, a toxicologist and contributing editor of a book on Chernobyl. And this video is available on the web under the title Chernobyl, A Million Casualties. And this is related to a book that was recently published by the New York Academy of Sciences entitled Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and Nature, written by Yablokov, Nestrenko, and Nestrenko, which comprises over 5,000 medical studies that have been conducted in the wake of Chernobyl that put the estimated number of deaths in the Chernobyl disaster not at 56, as is disgustingly claimed in that lying article previously stated, even though the official tally was in over 4,000, well, that has now been readjusted to just shy of 1 million deaths that are the result of the fallout from Chernobyl. Welcome to Enviro Close-Up. I am Carl Grossman. This coming April 26th marks the 25th anniversary of the Chernobyl nuclear plant disaster. Meanwhile, the 
nuclear industry worldwide is pushing for a revival of nuclear power, and this very important book has been published, Chernobyl, Consequences of the Catastrophe for People and the Environment, and it concludes based on now available medical data that between 1986, the year of the accident, and 2004, 985,000 people died as a result of the disaster, and more have been dying since. With us is Dr. Janet Sherman. She's the contributing editor of this book, which was authored by a noted Russian biologist, Dr. Alexei Yablakov, Vasily Nesterenko, and Alexei Nesterenko. They're both from Belarus. Welcome, Janet. How did these people die? I mean, we're talking a million people dead from this nuclear plant accident. How? They died of multiple different kinds of diseases, from cancer to heart disease, brain damage, uh, thyroid cancer. But many, many children died in utero, in other words, before they were born, or died of birth defects after they were born. How did these scientists determine 985,000 deaths as a result of Chernobyl? Based on medical data that were available to the scientists. Now, what we've heard, frankly, since the accident from the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is the, uh, the global group which is supposed to, to regulate and promote nuclear power, uh, the casualties of Chernobyl, well, currently the IAEA, International Atomic Energy Agency, on its website says maybe in all be 4,000 people dead. Now, that's quite different from 985,000. Why this, this discrepancy? Well, they released a report uh, called the Chernobyl Forum, and they only included about 350 articles uh, available in the English language. But Dr. Yablokov and uh, the two Nestorenkos looked at uh, well over 5,000 articles and uh, abs the people who were actually, we hate to use the term, but boots on the ground, people who were there and saw what was going on. Uh, we're talking about uh, medical doctors, scientists, veterinarians, um, epidemiologists who saw what was happening when people in their communities were getting sick and dying. There's another international agency, the World Health Organization, WHO. And indeed, the book charges that the truth has not come out on Chernobyl from the WHO. I mean, forget about the IAEA, but from the WHO because of a, an agreement between these two agencies. Can you elaborate on that agreement? They formed an agreement in 1959 that has not been changed where one will not release a, a, a report without the agreement of the other. Now, this is like having Dracula guard the blood bank because the WHO, who is charged with World Health Organization, is beholden to the IAEA before they can release a report. And what the IAEA, I mentioned before, it's... It's there to regulate nuclear technology around the world, but it was also set up to... Promote it. Promote it. Uh, and it evidently does not want anything from WHO, which would uh, 
indicate that nuclear power is not good for, for one's health. That's right. And that this needs to be ended. This agreement needs to be stopped. Let, let me go right to you. Now, you've devoted your life to the impacts of poisons. I mean, that, that's been your specialty. Mm-hmm. You're a toxicologist. Here, you're, you're editing this book. You're, you're going through all this scientific data. This has to be a million dead, the Chernobyl accident, the biggest technological disaster in the, frankly, the history of the world. It's true. How did you feel as you, you, you looked at the data and you put this book together? Well, I realized it was far worse than I thought it was. And um, that not only were um, people dying of cancer and heart disease, but every single organ in the body, whether it was immunological or lungs or cataracts or skin, everything was adversely affected. But not only people, every single system that was studied and not all were, but every system that was studied, whether it was humans or fish or trees or birds, bacteria, viruses, wolves, uh, cows, every system was changed. Every single system without exception. And this is reflected in, in this the book. It's not just human effects. Many of the birds and animals had similar adverse effects as humans. Now, most people aren't familiar with, I mean, we all know, I think, at this point that radioactivity and cancer go together. But like heart problems, heart disease, how, how does that connect? Well, the most, one of the most fascinating things that I learned in the, when I was uh, rewriting the text of the book and going through all the data was one of the scientists, Bandashevsky, had done a study that showed that the cesium-137 levels in children were the same as he had found in test animals and were causing heart damage. He reported this, and for his work, he was put in prison. And he was put in prison? He was put in prison, yes. And he analyzed, uh, these are animals that were... Well, he did the original study on animals, and then he was a pathologist, and he was studying the results in children, and he found the same changes in the hearts of children who had died as he'd seen in the animals. And when he reported it, his thanks was he got arrested and put in prison. Given the incredible extent of the disaster that was waiting at Chernobyl, it is perhaps less surprising at the Herculean, almost inhuman efforts that the Soviets went through to contain the the Chernobyl disaster and to attempt to bring it under control. And that was a process that took months and involved over 600,000 people often working in radiation-laden areas that were so dangerous that they could only work for seconds at a time and doing things that most people would never dream of doing, putting their lives on the line in an absolutely, unbelievably heroic effort to try to contain that situation. So perhaps this then is another launching point for an investigation into how Chernobyl can provide some tips as to the way to proceed at Fukushima. 
what did they actually accomplish? What did they do at Chernobyl to try to bring this under some measure of control? The hunt for Chernobyl's escaped nuclear fuel has been vital since the first moments after the accident in April 1986. The nuclear explosion destroyed the top of the reactor building and radioactive smoke was pouring forth. These pictures established beyond doubt that the core was on fire. But it's now clear that Soviet scientists feared things could have become far worse. To prevent a chain reaction, the military attempted to bomb the reactor with neutron absorbers and other chemicals. The radiation was intense and several pilots died as a result. They now know that despite the sacrifice, almost no neutron absorbers got into the core. Then on the 6th of May 1986, inexplicably, the emissions stopped. Something had happened in the core. The reactor lies in what is now the sarcophagus. The explosion had thrown the 2,000 ton reactor lid in the air. It fell on edge into the mouth of the reactor vessel. Pieces of the core were scattered all around. Desperate for technical information, the scientists of the complex expedition were sent into block four. They started searching in the basement rooms in the knowledge that the reactor might explode once again. Siege warfare continued in block four throughout the summer of 1986. Even though they burned their way through concrete walls, the hunt for nuclear fuel would go on for six months before there was any result. While the scientists searched in vain, above them the military were inundated with nuclear fuel. Fuel rods and graphite blocks, radioactive in the extreme, had been spat out of the reactor. Before the sarcophagus could be built, these pieces had to be pushed back into the reactor ruins. Soviet and Western robots were used. All failed. Either the radiation destroyed the electronics or they got trapped in the debris. This was the first of many occasions that Red Army volunteers were used in place of robots. The general in charge was Nikolai Tarakhanov. It was a desperate solution. In all, 3,400 men made these roof runs. With bitter irony, they were given the name of bio-robots. In theory, trips were timed to limit each bio-robot to the very substantial dose of 20 Röntgens. Some soldiers got it in under a minute. While the bio-robots battled on the roof, construction of the sarcophagus began. Everything about it was gargantuan. Six hundred thousand people worked in the cleanup. They were known as liquidators. A quarter of a million liquidators reached their lifetime radiation limit. If rain got into the open reactor, it could trigger a self-sustaining chain reaction. Speed was crucial. 
they were forced to build onto the damaged concrete at Block 4. By the end of October, the open reactor was almost covered. In less than three months, the liquidators were finishing the most difficult civil engineering task in modern history. At the end of 1986, the sarcophagus was sealed. The problem seemed buried. But hidden inside the sarcophagus, and still fearful of another explosion, the scientists of the complex expedition continued their hunt for nuclear fuel. As a reward, each soldier receives a liquidator certificate from the army and a hundred ruble bonus, the equivalent today of about a hundred US dollars. They have risked their lives, but they've only reduced the radiation level on the roof by 35%. When they sent all those people up onto the roof, no one knew exactly the actual level of radiation. Now we know it was between 10,000 and 12,000 Arongans per hour. At that level of radioactivity, people never should have been sent. Seven months after the explosion, the zone has been cleaned up and the sarcophagus completed. 500,000 people, military and civilians, have participated in the operation. I told the commission that, for having confronted such levels of radioactivity, having cleaned up all that graphite and having accomplished such heroic tasks, our soldiers needed something symbolic, like putting up our flag. Putting the flag up was like putting the flag on the Reichstag. When the Red Army conquered fascism, for them, the flag was a symbol of their triumph over radioactivity. Each team of liquidators celebrates the end of the operation in their own way. Bucharov and his men etch their names onto the final metal piece to go up on top of the sarcophagus. Our sarcophagus is a pantheon, a tomb, a mausoleum, our second mausoleum. After that, we stopped building nuclear power plants. A bitter victory. The country will never recover. It cost us 18 billion rubles. At that time, a ruble was worth one dollar. 18 billion. That's huge. And if you consider that shortly after the price of oil collapsed, you can imagine the trouble our country and Perestroika were up against. So is the so-called sarcophagus option one that is on the table for the troubled nuclear reactors at Fukushima Daiichi? Well, not according to Philip White, spokesman for the Citizens Nuclear Information Center here in Japan and a recent guest on the Corbett Report. 
Well, and also in the Chernobyl uh, analogy, obviously Chernobyl was eventually uh, brought under control by encasing the, the reactors in, in a sarcophagus, so-called, of, of cement. Why isn't that being done in the Fukushima case, and why are, why are they relying on dumping seawater on these reactors? Um, I don't know why they have decided not to do it, um, but I wouldn't think that it would be a very ideal solution. I think that it has massive problems associated with it. Um, firstly, uh, you've got uh, what, six reactors there, so the amount of cement that you'd have to uh, pour all over it is quite incredible. Um, at least Chernobyl was just one plant that had gone up. Um, also, you've got uh, um, some of this radioactivity is quite high up, like in the spent fuel pools, it's above the reactor, which was an extraordinarily stupid place to put spent fuel pools, but that's the way this design, this reactor was designed. And um, so if you pour cement on it, you're likely to actually um, cause the building to collapse completely. And in so doing, you're going to increase the number of ways in which that radioactivity can go out. Um, and it's unlikely that any such sarcophagus-type effort is going to encase enough of the radioactivity to be very effective. But, I mean, we're in a situation where there's no ideal solution, um, and at some point or other, people have to decide what's the least bad approach. And that may, at one point in time, be the least bad approach. But the preferable approach, in theory at least, is to cool the fuel um, with water. And uh, by keeping it cool, you can bring down the pressure and hopefully keep it under control. However, that's not something... I mean, there's a bit of an impression that's going around that, oh, they've got it under control now. That is a completely false impression. Um, They're a long way, and there's many, many dangerous steps down the track. <clears throat> and it's going to take not not days or weeks, but but months and years, um, because that spent fuel and the fuel that was actually being used at the time is uh, heat generating. It continues to generate heat. It will continue to generate heat for for decades, but particularly at dangerous levels for probably years. And for all that period of time, they're going to have to keep drawing the heat away by somehow or other creating circulation of water. And uh, while that's happening, if pressure goes up and they have to somehow or other release pressure. That'll involve releasing highly reactive gases into the environment. So there's, it's quite likely that there'll be further releases for some time to come. However, it's not exactly clear whether this is not an option that is being taken into account or even being actively prepared for. And we get this from April 1st, 2011, uh, from Cryptagon.com via MSNBC. Japan, same type of concrete pumping trucks used at Chernobyl are en route to Fukushima. 
quote, Some of the world's largest cement pumps were en route to, J- to Japan's stricken nuclear plant on Thursday, initially to help douse areas with water, but eventually for cement to work, including the possibility of entombing the site, as was done in Chernobyl. Operated via remote control, one of the truck-mounted pumps was already at the Fukushima Daiichi site and being used to spray water. Four more will be flown in from Germany and the United States, according to the German manufacturer Putzmeister. The biggest of the five has an arm that extends well over 200 feet. Initially, they will probably pump water, Putzmeister stated. Later, they will be used for any necessary concreting work. A construction company in Augusta, Georgia, was among those redirecting the pumps to Japan. Its owner said he believes building a concrete sarcophagus will follow. Our understanding is they are preparing to go to the next phase, and it will require a lot of concrete, Jerry Ashmore told the Augusta Chronicle, end quote. So evidently, it is still up in the air, and I can't say for sure, certainly, what is going to play out in the coming weeks and months that this disaster is expected to drag on, nor in the years ahead, when we will no doubt start to see people sickening from the contaminants that have already been put into the environment, including the highly radioactive water that has been leaking out to sea. And, of course, as with Chernobyl, it is very likely that if there were to be some sort of horrible accident and that there would be deaths resulting from this, that they would be covered up. And so it is on a very uncertain note that we'll have to end this episode, but certainly not end our investigation into what's happening at Fukushima. And it's something that the corporate media has already moved on to their next flavor of the week. So it is now incumbent on the alternative media, including, of course, the Corbett Report, to carry on that investigation and to try to come to a better understanding of what is happening and what is likely to happen. And I am not here trying to put myself on a pedestal to claim that I am an expert in radiation or in nuclear safety in the way that many people seem to think that they're an expert on earthquakes after a big earthquake happens or that they're experts on nuclear engineering in the wake of a nuclear calamity. Because I am not. I am very much like many of the listeners out there, someone who is just trying my level best to come to a good understanding of what's going on and to try to get sources of information that are useful in coming to that understanding. So I would commend to my listeners some of the sources that I'm using to try to keep abreast of the situation, including NHK and Kyoto News, which are good outlets for the official word that's coming out of TEPCO and the Japanese government for whatever that's worth, and also for to zerohedge.com, which surprisingly enough for a website that's most commonly associated with economic news is keeping abreast of the Japanese situation quite well. But I will also, of course, throw in links to some of the other uh, websites out there. And I am not one here who is trying to promote an agenda here or to say that this is necessarily the cause for great concern. For all I know, perhaps the people who think that this is all sunshine and rainbows and everything will be all right are right. And let's hope that they are. But when people like George Monbiot or Ann Coulter or Lewis Page of The Register go out there and start making ridiculous statements about how wonderful and nourishing radiation is and how no one will die from this accident, as Lewis Page has had the audacity to write in the pages of the Register. Well, when they make those statements, I certainly hope that they will be the first to volunteer to go down to the site and start working 
to contain the disaster. I am your host, James Corbett, thanking you for joining me and asking you to join me again next week for another edition of the Corbett Report.